0: Welcome to episode 39 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. One business note before we get into the show: True Media is hiring. If you are a software engineer or no one with at least two years of experience and you want to work on full stack web application development, then check out our job listing at truemedianetworks.com/careers. We'll have a link in our show notes for more details and to apply for the job. We work with over a hundred team and media clients and we'd love to have you join our team. Now, on with the show. This week's guest is Alex Vigderman, Lead Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions. If you work in the sports analytics world, you've probably heard of SIS, Sports Info Solutions. We had Mark Simon from their company on with us previously. In this conversation, Alex and I will talk about what Sports Info Solutions does, what he does as Lead Research Analyst, Compiling the SIS Football Rookie Handbook. Analyzing Strengths and Weaknesses of Florida Quarterback Kyle Trask. Another Draft Prospect that numbers suggest is undervalued. Sports Info Solutions' Total Points Model, which measures individual contribution in football. Creating Metrics Without Necessarily Knowing a Player's Intent on a Play. Fine-Tuning Their Defensive Run Saved Stat. The SIS Defensive Fantasy Baseball Draft. His takeaways from this year's Sabre Conference and Alex's path into sports analytics as a psychology major at Penn. Then, True Media's Albert Locata will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the Expected Value conversation with Sports Info Solutions' Alex Vigderman. We're joined now on Expected Value by... Alex Vigderman, Lead Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions. Alex, welcome to the show. Let's start very broadly before we dive into the weeds of what you do. What is Sports Info Solutions? What do you do as a company?
1: We collect uh, a whole bunch of data, primarily from video. We started as Baseball Info Solutions in the early 2000s and uh, moved into football in around 2015, and we just added basketball actually last season. Um, and so the sports info solutions monikers is more, uh, relevant now. And we basically do most of our data collection from video using, uh, what we call video scouts, dozens of, of, people who are watching games to collect various data points. So, uh, we're the primary data provider for play-by-play for fan graphs, for example, for baseball. And so we collect all of the various play-by-play things, but also more advanced items, particularly as it relates to defense. So we'll record lots of different, uh, data points that are, you know, creating more nuance to uh, defensive analysis in terms of things that that players did a little bit well or a little bit poorly, grading the difficulty of plays, plotting where they were hit, how long they took to get there, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then on the football and basketball side, we, we have a little bit more of an involved operation because those sports sort of ask a little bit more of you in terms of the, the depth of, of charting data. That's basically what we do for those three sports.
0: And then you are a research analyst there. What do you generally do in that role? Again, we'll get into the weeds of different metrics
1: and things like that. But generally, what are you doing as a research analyst for SIS? Sure. So we are in a sort of unique position uh, where we kind of serve both public and team interests. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of our work is doing research, whether it's for new products or uh, research papers, what we call newsletters, essentially monthly research uh, that goes out to our team clients. And so it's a split between these sort of longer term projects where we're trying to learn something more broad, trying to build a metric, something like that, and some things that are a little bit more short term, uh, where we're writing articles, we're writing blog posts. We have various places that we post articles on that, that use some of our data. So there's sort of a mix of things that are more in the public sphere, uh, tweets and and articles and and, uh, metrics and leaderboards and stuff like that, and then things that are also more long-term that potentially could serve us in terms of uh, serving teams.
0: So you personally have a skill set that combines, as I'll say, kind of a a technical know-how where you're working on these metrics and fine-tuning metrics and also uh, have to be able to communicate all these things and explain them to a broader audience. Those are kind of your I don't know, two main prongs, very broadly speaking? Yeah,
1: I, I would say that. We, we've we spent a little bit more time in the last couple years uh, trying to get people who are, are more able to communicate those ideas. We hired Mark Simon from ESPN, who you know, a couple of years ago, primarily to allow us to better communicate these ideas and make sure that, that we're not only doing good work, but also making sure that that people understand it and that we're not going over people's heads or presenting data. You know, We are trying to limit the amount of times that we present a table that's six columns with three decimal places and stuff right. like that, making things a little bit more concise. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're doing uh, really sort of groundbreaking work. So we're also getting people who are skilled on the technical side, whether it's SQL or R primarily. So
0: let's dive into some of the, the weeds that we've referenced a couple of times. The NFL draft is coming up uh, later this month. One of the big things that SIS pumps out every year is the football rookie handbook. I guess start just telling me what that is and then we'll go into how you put that together and, and takeaways from it.
1: Sure. So the football rookie handbook is in essence a draft guide for the players who are entering the NFL this year, but also uh, you know, it, it serves as a good way to get your hands on people who are coming into the NFL even through their rookie year. So that's why we sort of call it the rookie handbook. And it is, in essence, our draft board for the top, say, 300 players coming into the NFL this year. And we present sort of both sides of their um, performance in, in at the college level, where we have sort of side by side the stats of various, at various levels in terms of basic to, to more advanced, and then also a scouting report by our uh, video scouts. So we we don't want to necessarily, you know, we we grade the players and we put them in in a ranking system among the players at the position, but we also want to present the stats side and we don't let them we don't let them mix. Mm-hmm. So we we want the scouting report to present one thing and the stats present another thing and essentially treat you as the GM. You get to make the decision about which of those things you trust um and and which tells you the more compelling story. And then we also have alongside that Uh, leaderboards for all of those stats we have research articles that are either things that we've written uh, over the course of the year or stuff that we wrote specifically for for the book so it's it's I mean this year it's 700 pages or something so it's it's a whole lot of content
0: yeah it's a ton of information we'll have a we'll have a link in our show notes if people are interested in getting a digital or a physical copy of that. Since the quarterbacks are the dominant story this year, as they often are, but maybe this year in particular at the top of the draft, uh, what is something that you learned diving into uh, the numbers, the analysis of one of these
1: top prospects? I mentioned that we have articles in in there as well as the scouting reports and, and the tables of data. And I guess, you know, he's not necessarily one of the uh, top, top guys, but Kyle Trask of Florida mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting guy. because So we, we did a couple of, of articles in the book, one particular is about uh, quarterback accuracy and the different sort of tiers of statistics that you can use to measure quarterback accuracy. So you can start with completion percentage, but then we can kind of uh, ratchet it up a little bit where we can talk about catchable percentage, you know, the percentage of of balls that are catchable, on target percentage, the percentage of balls that are are hitting the receiver in stride. And then we can get sort of predicted completion percentage kind of consistent with what the NFL does with their next-gen stats. And then we have, you know, on-target percentage above an expectation, which is a similar kind of thing, but specifically related to whether the pass was on target. So we don't even care about what the receiver did. We don't care about if the receiver caught it. It's just was it on target or not relative to the difficulty of the throw. And Trask ends up being the most accurate passer in the FBS by that last metric, on-target percentage uh, above expectation. Um, So he's about seven percentage points higher on-target rate than what you'd expect uh, given the difficulty of his throws. But in a different article... We had on-off splits, and so we looked at some of his high-level targets who are also coming out this year, Uh, Kyle Pitts, the tight end, and Kadarius Toney, the wide receiver. And unsurprisingly, Trask's numbers drop off when those guys aren't on the field. But it does sort of paint a picture of a player who can perform really well but uh, might be more of of what we call sort of like a win-with quarterback, a quarterback who's going to need those high-level playmakers who are – you know, getting matchup advantages to have more of the success relative to those guys who are really at the tippy top. But but given what he's done in terms of, of accuracy, we do think that he's a, a pretty interesting prospect.
0: Yeah, that's always the tough thing, for, especially as SEC guys. Are they good because of the system, or the team, or the talent, or or whatever it might be? Uh, any anyone else maybe that is lower on draft
1: boards than you generally think they should be? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I'm the, I'm on the stats side of this primarily. I'm not sure. a, a football scout, so I, I tend to get more excited by the guys who sort of, uh, you know, this year we have what, 18 different leaderboards per position. So if you just like look across the leaderboards and you see the same name at the top, mm-hmm. you start to get kind of interested. So Greg Newsom the second is a, a cornerback who's, who's coming out and we have him as the, the sort of the, the next tier after Patrick Sertan, the second JC Horn and Caleb Farley. So we have a, a, total value metric, which is sort of similar to like a wins above replacement type thing um, called total points. Yep. And uh, Newsom was easily pacing the position in terms of, of total points in coverage. Uh, so, so he's at the top of that list and is one of the sort of like second tier guys from a scouting perspective. Um, he was also really productive in press coverage, which is really indicative of your talent level because you can only at the college level, only the guys who can really pull it off are able to or even given the chance to play in press coverage so he was also productive uh, in that way and he allowed really low completion percentage especially uh, when you adjust for things like did the receiver if the receiver dropped the pass well technically he would have caught it um, or if the pass is uncatchable so if you make sort of adjustments like that that are sort of uh, isolating the effect of the defensive back on uh, the receiver's ability to make the catch he looks really good from that perspective and he also makes a lot of, uh, pass breakups. So making a lot of impact really, uh, you know, te- uh, clamping down on, on opposing receivers and is, is not necessarily one of those sort of top top guys.
0: You mentioned total points, which is one of your I don't know, headline football metrics. I guess we would call it, uh, at the NFL level, you've done a lot of work on it this year and explaining and, and what goes into it over the past couple of years. So as, let's just start there. What is total points? How do you put that
1: together in creating, as you said, kind of a football version of war? Yeah. So total points essentially starts with expected points added. So at a, you know, play by play level, we can say how much a, you know, a third down eight yard pass on on third and four is worth compared to an eight yard pass on first and 10. And, you know, we also care about the location on the field and stuff like that. So we can turn the value of a play in terms of expected points added and uh, start distributing that among the players involved. So we have a whole bunch of charting data. We have participation data, you know, so how which player was on the field and doing what on on each play, and so we can say for this play, you know, it was worth one point in general, but the offensive line didn't do a great job, so we might give them even negative credit relative to that. And the quarterback was able to make an accurate throw, and the receiver caught it in stride and and made a guy miss after he caught the ball. And so we're going to use all of these different charting data points to sort of apportion the credit to the different players involved. So um, we're, we're constantly improving on this and we're, we're adding stuff every year, but that's sort of the way that we want to evaluate players at a holistic level. And um, in the book this year, we also added uh, total points rating, which is essentially a, a sort of Madden rating style uh, evaluation of players on a per play basis. So not just the total value of that player over the course of the season, but especially this year where teams played a whole bunch of different, numbers of games, we wanted to have a per play metric that was able to uh, encapsulate how a guy did in whatever sample he had. Um, So that total points rating is essentially, you know, on a Madden or a grade school rating of 50 to 99. And, and so that's a good way to sort of evaluate players uh, regardless of how much they played.
0: All right. So just to make sure I understand this, so you're taking the EPA on a play. So if, you know, if it's plus, like I said, plus one, and then you're splitting that among the 11 players on the field. Uh, how do you kind of decide? I mean, obviously, you know, everyone thinks, you know, the quarterback's most important and, and it trickles on down from there. How do you kind of divvy that up among those players? And I know it varies according to every play, but just kind of generally speaking, as that m- metric is put together, how do you apportion the credit for these plays?
1: Yeah. So I guess also I, the best way is probably to start with just a sort of average passing play. So every play, first of all, is evaluated uh, in terms of the the nature of the play in general. So we know that that passing is more valuable than rushing on average. And in particular in certain uh, down distance and location in the field situations that might be modulated. So we actually make an, a sort of initial adjustment where we say, if you called a run on third and nine, there's just less credit to go around. It's just like a bad situation to be put in. Mm-hmm. And so the players actually get fiddled with uh, related to that. But uh, so the ball gets snapped and the offensive line, you know, let's say one guy does uh, blow a block, he gets beaten off the line. We essentially take the average value of plays in which that happens and uh, use that as, as a piece of information to say that's how much value the offensive lineman was sort of costing his team. And, you know, you were saying, like, if, if there's a certain amount of credit uh, and we're dividing it, well, it's possible that one guy will be negative negative. And everybody else will be positive. So it's, it's not necessarily just dividing up a small number. Um, so that, you know, that negative number, well, that made it more difficult for everybody else. So the, the quarterback gets a little bit of that credit back because he was put in a bad spot. And potentially the receiver also gets a little bit of credit because he was sort of making a play in an odd situation. So then we also estimate the value of the throw based on how deep it was thrown, what the coverage was, what the route was, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then you know, was the pass on target and and how does that affect the expectation for yards after catch, for example? The receiver, does he, is he able to get yards after catch compared to that expectation? So, you know, a screen, we expect him to get more yards after catch than a curl, for example. And so we build that in. And then essentially all these things are sort of creating an expectation for what a player would do in a certain situation. And then how did he compare to that expectation in terms of uh, yards gained or, or completion percentage or any of those sorts of things. And, you know, these are not decisions we're making play by play. As you said, right. this is a, you know, a code base that's acting on everything uh, simultaneously. So we're, we're not grading plays. We're not, you know, we're not doing any of that kind of stuff. We're just using what we view as these small little objective data points and kind of tying them together. Yep. So one question I'm sure
0: you get a lot, and I hear a lot anytime there's tracking involved in football data is... We, as outside observers, don't know what, what the player is supposed to do, so to speak. What is his job on the play? How do you respond to that? Because, you know, in some ways, it's a legit question. And in some ways, I think there's, you know, reasonable answers. And so what, what's your response to that question
1: that comes in a lot? I think it's a totally reasonable complaint. You know, we started in baseball. It's a lot less of a problem in baseball. Right. We have a little bit of, of that kind of stuff with, for example, um, pitch location and command and you know we can try and and judge you know the catcher location as a proxy for mm-hmm. intent and in football yeah i mean one thing that came up in a conversation on twitter probably 2 months ago was you know if if a guy blitzes but he he really was blitzing late you know he he wasn't initially planning on doing that but the situation dictated that it made sense for him to do that the running back stayed into block or whatever is that called a blitz or not and you know as it relates to the effect on the quarterback yeah, that does, it does matter that there was an extra rusher, but as it relates to the call on the defense, that's not necessarily what they were intending on doing. And so a lot of it depends. And that's an unfortunate, you know, that's a a catch all answer for lots of things. It depends. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the more complex, the more there are things like playbooks that affect things, the more likely you are to have, uh, to make a mistake potentially when you are trying to judge intent. So we're more likely to say, we're not going to try to guess. We're not going to try and worry about that kind of stuff. We're going to measure what we can that we view as as objective as possible um, and and basically use the, a person's top-down knowledge to, to potentially give the information about what they were intending on doing.
0: So let's shift over to baseball. Defensive runs saved, uh, as you mentioned, one of the kind of gold standard defensive stats, easy to understand stats in baseball, been around for a long time, and you're always improving it with you know additional data, et cetera. What are the latest updates you've made to DRS to
1: get ready for this 2021 season? So going into the 2020 season, we added the ability to evaluate uh, infielders based on their positioning, and so we were we plot the uh, initial locations of all the infielders, and we can say. You know, what was the expectation of the batted ball before we know anything? What was the expectation of the batted ball once we know where the guys were positioned? And then what was the expectation when uh, the player fields the ball? And and how do those things change over time? And we can sort of split up positioning and then range and then throwing. And that's on the infield side. For this season, we're adding that for outfielders. So we're plotting the positions of the outfielders so that we can uh, measure how much of an out is the team's responsibility or positioning's responsibility and how much of it is the player's range. Um, So we're adding that this year. Another thing that we uh, sort of unfortunately had to do is, uh, this is not something that that fans, you know, interact with generally, but for whatever reason, the broadcast on most broadcasts at this point, when it switches the camera angle from when the pitcher throws the ball to when the ball goes into the field, there is actually a loss of like A tenth two tenths of a second Mm -hmm. uh which is odd you'd think it'd be the opposite direction that it would be a lag but it actually cuts off uh, a little bit of time Uh, we've heard teams refer to it as like a time skip and the problem is when we're recording data from video that means that we think that the ball was hit a little harder than it really was and so when we evaluate it from a defensive run saved perspective it looks like a more difficult play and so the player gets more credit for completing the play that was essentially not as difficult as as the data suggests. So for many parks uh, over the last few years, we were seeing this, this uh, result where players were getting buoyed in terms of their defensive run saved based on this phenomenon. And because defensive run saved is an above average metric, so the average player is at zero, then if someone's being inflated, then someone else is being deflated. And that deflation is based on nothing for them. You know, they're they're just being deflated because someone else is being inflated. So you get this sort of stretching of defensive run saved in both directions. And so we realized this and we were able to sort of uh, backfill some of our data uh, going back to like uh, 2017, although the effect is small in 2017. It's mostly 2018, 2019. So we were able to come back and backfill uh, those defensive run saved numbers so they're more accurate. And, you know, players move... Of, uh, there are some players that move a decent amount. Most of them are moving by one or two runs in either direction. And we have this resolved going forward, we're able to use uh, the camera from behind home plate to see everybody on the field, so that we're not getting that camera switch. So we're, we're uh, good to go going forward. But we also had to do a little bit of of fixing for the last couple of years. Yeah, data's always changing. It's always tricky in that regard. Yeah, it's fun.
0: You at SIS have a defensive run saved fantasy league, which this is kind of a Mark Simon special. I know he's been in leagues like this for for years. You tweeted out your draft. We'll put a link in the show notes. You got Matt Chapman, number one, uh, with your number one pick. How do you feel about the way your team was put together here?
1: I was, so this is the first time that I uh, spent a little bit more effort trying to like build a draft board. I, I did this sort of cliche little fantasy thing of like comparing players to the replacement level of, of that position. And and so I felt better about my squad than uh, in past years. I actually also, for the first time, I think, executed a draft pick trade. Uh, so I actually traded up to get Chapman. All right. Um, Matt Manicharian was sitting in, in that slot and and I saw that he was sort of the end of a tier. Yeah. Uh so I, I went in and, and tried to get him. So uh, I'm pretty, pretty pleased with him. He was actually one of the most affected players by this uh, time switching thing mm-hmm. uh, in a negative way. So his DRS okay. numbers actually dropped off uh, a handful of runs each of the last couple of years. So the good thing is that our projection system for defensive run save knows that. So uh, I'm, I'm not being fooled by myself, but <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel pretty good. He's a, a potentially an all time defensive third baseman. So yeah. I feel all right having him it's certainly not. I think I took him last year with my first pick and that was probably the second overall pick. So I got him yeah. as a steal as the fourth.
0: Pick. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Sabre analytics conference, uh, was last month held virtually like most conferences uh, right now. Uh, any, any big takeaways that kind of jumped out at you as that came from that conference? I think the,
1: the big thing is that, uh, analysis of the players of, of sort of physics and the physical properties of the players is really where things are going Mm -hmm. um whether it's biomechanics or uh the the properties of the ball or uh injury analysis or this whole new phenomenon of seam shifted wake you know the the idea that uh the spin of the ball isn't enough to tell you how the ball is going to move it's actually the orientation of it and how the ball flying through the air with the seams in certain locations affects the way that it moves all of this stuff really means that that it almost feels like you need a PhD to talk mm-hmm. about baseball anymore. But it, it's it's fascinating, but also it's it's sort of a lot to process for someone who who's not coming up through that sort of pipeline. Right. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of
0: your pipeline, let's kind of talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. You were a psychology major at Penn. So how did that career path from a psych major get you into, I will say, sports analytics and now at
1: SIS? Yeah, I... Uh, so I was, I was a math and science person in in high school. And uh, then I proceeded to like pass out of the the first level classes. And so my freshman year, I took like more advanced classes and got destroyed by those Mm -hmm. and felt (laughs) discouraged. Uh, And so I also was really interested in uh, the psychology class that I took. And I also had parents who were very supportive of the idea of using college as an opportunity to learn about things that you're interested in and not Mm -hmm. necessarily worrying about the sort of Professional side of it afterwards, and and you can build skills in other ways, and you can market yourself in other ways. But college is a unique opportunity to learn about other subjects, and so the psychology major I found fascinating, and you know I was able to get minors in math and statistics, which allowed to get allowed me to get a skill set that was more marketable to the things that I was eventually going to be interested in doing. That said, off the bat. Coming out of college, I was not sufficiently marketable to get those kinds of jobs. So I ended up having a job in in the healthcare IT industry, and so it was sort of off to the side. Uh, I was doing a little bit of stuff on the side in terms of of the technical side, but I eventually just decided, you know, I want to do something that's a little bit more quantitative in nature, and so I started applying for jobs in whether it was consulting or, or you know, quant positions and stuff like that, but also uh, on the sports side, primarily on in baseball, because that's where most of the jobs were. This was at the time in 2015. And um, I actually applied to work for, at the time, I guess it was Baseball Info Solutions, and didn't get that job. But they referred me to the Boston Red Sox, who had an internship that was uh, open. And I took that internship and worked there for a year and then, it turned out that the sports info solutions job was available again a year later and so i applied again interviewed and here i am and and the funny thing is that i i you know came from the baseball side and the company was mostly baseball but then within a year or so of me starting the person who was primarily running the football stuff ended up leaving and so i as a person who was interested in in both sports sort of took up the football side. And so now I spend more of my time on football, but I'm also able to do both, which is great. It's not, you know, if you're working for a team, you're so focused on, on that one thing. And, And the working for a company like this does allow you the ability to kind of do a bunch of different things.
0: Yeah. So I think your, your college path is interesting to me. So if someone who's interested in just say, sports analytics in general comes to you and and asks about what you did, you know, majoring in something else, but also, you know, doing some data science or analytics or whatever we want to call it on the side a little bit, uh, what would you say? Because it sounds like there's kind of pros and cons of both
1: approaches. What would you say to someone who's trying to figure out uh, how to attack that in college? I think it's an interesting idea. I think if, if I had my druthers, I might have flipped things where the major might have been on the quant side only because there's a certain amount of depth that it, that you need a lot of the the courses that you take in college for for whether it's data science statistics stuff like that you get your toe dipped in but you're not necessarily able to jump into to stuff in the workplace or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that said, those things whether it's you know the especially the data science and statistics stuff, there's tons of online resources. And so Th- there's more opportunity than ever to learn that stuff on the side, and there isn't necessarily that opportunity to learn some of these more like liberal arts things. And what I will say is that having a different domain knowledge does allow you to think about things in a different way. You know, it's it's not right to say like you're a robot and you're, you're mm-hmm. I'm doing math math math, but uh, you, you having another frame of reference does allow you to, to think yeah. about things in a different way. And and certainly for psychology specifically, it allows you to think more about heuristics and biases and, and and the way that we mm-hmm. consume information and the way that we might be thinking about things wrong. You know, you can also think about working in, you know, if, if you did research in like ecology, well, there's lots of natural phenomena that kind of mirror themselves. And so there, there's all kinds of different sort of tie-ins that you can take from different subjects. And certainly as a person who is involved in the hiring process at our company, I'm, I'm always interested in people who are coming from those different directions because I think that they might provide there there's all different kinds of diversity that you can pursue. And and that's one uh, sort of aspect of diversity.
0: Yeah, no, I like that. It's, it's always interesting just how the paths people take how they get there so many different ways to get into these fields. So we like to wrap things up with our plain favorite segment, where we went through a number of your favorites kind of quick hitting type of
1: questions. So we're going to start with what is your favorite number and why? The The easy answer, I guess would be 26, because I was born on the 26th. And as a kid, I, I just sort of yeah, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. So I liked the the guys who were number twenty six. Alex Arias was twenty six. And then of course Chase Utley, who was a much more uh substantial substantial player. <laughs> yeah, that's prob- that's probably
0: the, the right answer. Stick with twenty six. So f- favorite player as a kid is usually our next question. So Arias and Utley, those
1: might be the two leaders for you. Those are the two leaders. So the reason i was I was uh, hemming and hawing on the number thing is because I, I also kind of liked the number eight because it has sort of like an aesthetic thing. you turn it sideways and it looks like infinity mm-hmm. and whatever. it's it's kind of a funny number. and and again, Philly's player at the time, uh, Shane Victorino, who had, you know, Victorino Vigderman, that kind of sound the same. And yep. so uh, I had his his jersey. And so yeah, he might be uh, my favorite player as a, Kid, that was sort of on the older end of, of kid at the time, I suppose. But yeah.
0: So you mentioned Philly's fan, grew up in the North Philly area. You have a favorite Philly cheesesteak place, or is there some other Philly restaurant that people should go to instead if they go there?
1: Uh, so, so if we're talking about other, other Philly things, I would certainly recommend, uh, De Nix roast pork, which is in Reading Terminal yes, Market. I've had that. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. I, I used to watch the show man versus food and the, the host of that did a, a, top 50 sandwiches in the country. And, and that was his number one sandwich mm. in terms of cheesesteak places. I would, I would say Jim's on South street, which is, uh, actually across the street from a pizza place and there's what they call a Philly taco or a, a South street special or whatever, yeah. where you wrap Do the cheesesteak in the pizza. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's probably what I would insist you try if you are not anywhere close to a heart condition. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds good.
0: You have a favorite nerdy thing that you track.
1: I, so in the past, it probably was that, uh, in my freshman year of college, I tracked, uh, the performance of myself and, and all of my friends in, in playing super smash brothers. <laughs> nice. Um, and reported results at the end of the year. Uh-huh. More recently, it's probably board games. Um, I spend a, a decent amount of time playing them and then logging those plays. And And my family does a, a end of year award show, which <laughs> I sort of uh, monitor for everybody. Um, so that's that's probably the, the more recent version of that. I like it. I
0: like it. And finally, do you have a favorite? How did I get here moment? Meaning, you know, you're able to step back and be like, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, these things, this job,
1: places that this has taken me. So two sides of the same coin, both from the, from my, uh, internship with the Red Sox, Mm -hmm. there's certainly a, uh, gravitas that comes from your office being Fenway park. Uh, so go being able to just like have a sandwich for lunch, sitting in the green monster Uh is awesome. We also the, for whatever reason, the interns were part of the process of deciding how to prioritize Playoff tickets that were being given out, which were the right. good seats, which were the bad seats. We had to grade seats on a, uh-huh. on a grading scale from A to F. So you just sat around the different parts of the stadium and graded seats. And in Fenway, it's kind of interesting because yeah. you know there there are obstructed view seats. So there's a seat that's an A minus, and then the seat next to it is an F. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, a really interesting, a really interesting thing to do, but also a, a, a sort of powerful position. For sure. No, it's
0: good stories to wrap things up. So Alex Vigerman, lead research analyst at Sports Info Solutions. Thanks for joining us here on
1: Expected Value. Yeah, thanks so much for having me
0: back in the true media studios i'm paul carr thanks again to sports info solutions alex vigderman for joining us on the show you can follow him on twitter at VigManOnCampus, v-i-g man on campus and check our show notes for links to get the sis football rookie handbook read about their total points metric defensive Run saved and much more i'm joined now by true media senior director of analytics albert lancada albert welcome back to the
2: show what did you take away from the conversation with alex yeah, it was an interesting conversation. I guess early on, what struck me when you asked him about um, sort of things he learns through the 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 process of looking at the metrics for the, the NFL draft eligible players, he he mentioned Kyle Trask, and th- the way he got there was talking about how they have various metrics, basic completion percentage, on target percentage, getting more into expectation of you know, accounting for you know how far downfield they are. They get to a metric of, I think he called it on target percentage above expectation. And he had mentioned that he's found that that's a predictive metric. My guess is what he means by that is they've checked the stability and that uh, he's found or they found that that metric is stable over time. So whether it's season over season, first half of season uh, versus second half of the season, college to pro, something like that. Which I think in general is just a, a great point for anyone who's creating sports metrics for any sport. That is a key thing to test once you feel like you've you know created a model or created something derivative from data uh, in sports. Always check that. Is your metric stable? Does it Is it stable season over season? Does season one correlate to season two? Does you know the first half of the season correlate to the second half of the season? something like that? I think that's a really important thing for anyone who's creating metrics to test. And in my opinion, it's one of the reasons why, well, there's a lot of reasons. One of them, a reason that baseball has become so into the numbers and how it's so widespread in front offices now, is it's really easy to show how stable a lot of these metrics are. And conversely, how noisy or unstable some are. So with pitchers and batters now, so much of the game is centered around strikeouts, walks, and home runs because they've found that those metrics are very stable year to year. If a guy, if a pitcher can prevent walks and get strikeouts and batters, vice versa, they're going to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's irrefutable evidence that you, you know you don't you don't have to be a numbers guy as long as you have a numbers guy who presents it in a good way, it's pretty easy to show that that's the case. Obviously, for many reasons, baseball' is a much easier sport to analyze than football, soccer, et cetera. But that's always a goal. Whenever you're building a metric, uh, among other goals, one of the goals should be to make sure that your metric is stable as that will help your story when you start telling it to others. Yeah, and that's for – on the soccer front, that's one of the things
0: I will get asked a lot is why are you using expected goals instead of goal difference or goal scored or whatever? And that's part of it is year over year, it's been shown to be more predictive and – you know, the numbers are pretty clear, especially the larger sample size you get. It's different if you're using it on a single game or a small sample size basis. But everyone and every team tends to regress to the mean or at least their mean, uh, whatever that might be. And I, and I thought that kind of went along with the question about, you know, what do you, how do you respond to critics who will say that the, all these tracking metrics uh, are useless or less useful at least because you don't know especially in football you know what a player is supposed to do or what the team is supposed to be doing and this kind of goes a long ways toward that i mean first of all you you know you train people to do the very best that they can without obviously knowing what the play call was or what the coach told them to do or something like that and then beyond that you test it i mean you you did this you know things like this when you built the QBR at ESPN is you know you do the best that you can and then you run these tests It's not as though people in any of these companies are making up these stats you know for fun they're they're doing it for a reason they're doing it as statistically sound as they can and I know that's hard to explain sometimes and and there's always going to be nuances that they can't capture and that's okay no one's going to say that they're perfect and I mean I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here but uh, that's it's just it's a common criticism and there's some legitimacy to it and just got to understand that look you do the best you can and you test these things the best you can look, these metrics are valuable in, in different ways maybe it's different ways than a coach might want to use it or somebody else might want to use it but there's still obviously value in all this stuff all right thanks albert and thanks one last time to alex vigerman of sports info solutions for being our guest this week check our archives for plenty of other football guests including nfl director of analytics michael lopez espn's brian burke mike Sando, aaron Schatz, eric eager and much more Uh, Plus, Sports Info Solutions, Mark Simon, talking defensive runs saved and a lot of other stuff. Stay tuned to Expected Value in the coming weeks for shows with winners of the NFL's Big Data Bowl and Robbie Robinson, Mets minor league coach. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on any podcast platform. Share the podcast on social media and anywhere else possible. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone else here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world we mm-hmm.